there, folks. Welcome to Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. A little dinosaur junior this week to uh, get the podcast kicking off. Um, I actually went to go see Dinosaur Junior with a good buddy of mine uh, this past Saturday. Thought that might be a good, good intro to the show. A little feel the pain. Um, we got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry to have missed y'all. Um, as always, my name's Stephen Craig. I am the host and author of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less, and uh, we were off last week uh, in large part because uh, of other prior commitments that I had. Uh, but we're gonna do a double a double dose this week. We're gonna we're gonna double you up because I did write a column last week. Uh, and so we got plenty, we got plenty to say regardless. So, um, in any case, sorry that we missed you. We'll get right down to it. The first, um, the first order of business for this week in, uh, is a column that I wrote about formalism and it was actually sparked, um, uh, my girlfriend and I went to go see, uh, the importance of being earnest by Oscar Wilde. And I, I absolutely love that play. It was incredibly well done. Uh, kudos to the, uh, Breckenridge backstage theater. Uh, which I, I pumped plenty on, on social media as well. I always believe in doing so. And uh, in any case, we um, we ended up getting into a discussion during the um, during the play. And and I um, I was telling my girlfriend how not only how much I absolutely love Oscar Wilde. I actually have a Oscar Wilde action figure given to me by students years ago when I was teaching um, the novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, which I will still suggest is uh, probably the uh, maybe the greatest novel written on that side of the pond. And listen, Dickens is out there, and there's some certainly some you know, the Bronte sisters, etc. But uh, but that's my that's probably my personal favorite. In any case, um, we were watching the play, and I I, I had um, I was telling my girlfriend about how when I was back in graduate school and studying various elements of literary criticism. Um, that I really started uh, becoming an advocate for the art, for the art movement that took place during the early late late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, where the focus, um, the focus of the the sort of critics' pursuit, the readers' pursuit, is the appreciation of art, just for itself, and I I became really fascinated. If you ever get a chance, read uh, the preface of. Uh, the preface to the picture of Dorian Gray in its entirety, I excerpted part of it for the beginning of the piece, but um, it was, it's always been, uh, that's always been my draw to art. You know, we live in a world, uh, in an age particularly, where so much of the, um, so much of the attention paid to the work is, is based upon its message, whether or not it uh, subscribes to certain, um, certain points of view in regards to race and gender and those various issues and I, I, I all of those issues appeal to me um, but in the end what comes down to me for art is the beauty the beauty of the way that someone crafts sentences um, the beauty of a way a painter paints the music that somebody creates and with that I give you uh, the first of this week's column called it's not what you say it's but how you say it Oscar Wilde once wrote, the artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well written 
or badly written. That is all. All art is quite useless. The preceding quote is from the preface to his seminal classic, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And if you know me whatsoever, you know I absolutely fucking love that novel. And yes, I put that F word in there intentionally. I did it for the purpose of dramatic effect because an author, as an author, I consciously pour over each and every word I type, trying to mine nuggets of eloquence and beauty in the midst of the raw ore of exasperated prose. More than anything else, I endeavor to do in this little weekly diatribe, I strive to form words into art, and that is the whole point of this week's column. One of the reasons I love Dorian Gray is that lyric is that lyrically philosophical preface where Oscar Wilde effectively encapsulates the entire art for the art aesthetic movement that came of vogue in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I will spend days of class time focused on how Wilde was rejecting critical focus on a work's supposed meaning and emphasizing instead its form, its inherent style and beauty. Wilde didn't care what the work was trying to say. He wanted to relish its literary juices flowing down his chin and savor the aesthetic construction of each and every sentence. Like many people, I was drawn to literature by ideas. There was the philosophical tie to nature and Eastern philosophy and Emerson and Thoreau that engaged my verbal imagination. And we all have song lyrics that we go to time and again because they simply speak to us. But as I have told many a student over the years, there are no more new ideas. Human history is simply too long to think you have anything new to say. Think your story of a great and powerful love lost has never been heard before? <laughs> okay, how about you go read Romeo and Juliet? <laughs> think your tale of oppressed and marginal of oppression and marginalization is never heard before? Oh, please, you name me the downtrodden group and I'll name the novel. And don't even get me started on your dystopian concept. I read The Art of the Deal. Years ago. <laughs> so why bother to write? Why waste our time constructing stories and poems with themes and underlying messages that have already been told before? The purpose of art is not to come up with new and novel ideas but in finding ever more beautiful, ever more creative ways of expressing those same ideas. For it is in the creation of the beautiful that the passion for living resides. That's what Wilde means when he suggests that art is quote-unquote useless. He doesn't mean that art is like my dad after a couple of gin and tonics. Wilde is suggesting that art does not need to have a purpose other than making the world a better place through the creation of the beautiful. It is not here to convince you of anything or change your thinking. It does not need to be moral or immoral. Or immoral. That is entirely irrelevant. It does not need to create awareness or serve a cause. In fact, while art can very much do all those things, what distinguishes art from mere rhetoric is the ability to be perceived and appreciated solely for its artistic inherent artistic merit. 
for its provocation of our aesthetic sensibilities. When we perceive art, we don't ask, what can I get from this? Rather, we sit back and marvel, remarking, consciously or not, wow, that's fucking beautiful, or some iteration thereof. When I was in an aesthetics class, when I was at Colgate University, I had a professor who used to, Professor Balmuth, by the way, an amazing, uh, an amazing philosophy professor. And uh, he used to bring a Kleenex box to the front of the room. And it had, it was decorative. Um, and he suggested that if you, as the perceiver of the art, can perceive it in a way that you don't no longer look at it with the pragmatic purpose of being a Kleenex box, something that holds tissues and snot rags. But if you can look at it, look at the outside pattern and just appreciate it for the beauty that somebody put into designing it, that somehow or another that it struck you with some aesthetic merit, that's that's the perception of art. In many ways, the artistic nature of an object comes as much from the perspective of the perceiver as it does in the creation of the artist. After all, if we are really are to appreciate art for art's sake, much of that lies in the ability of the viewer to see it merely for its beauty and nothing else. That, of course, takes an appreciative eye. Often that comes from experience and training, the type of passionate pursuit that leads to connoisseurship. You can put a $10 bottle of wine in front of me alongside a $2,000 Rothschild, and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But you damn well better believe that I can tell you just how John Dunn brilliantly manipulates the violence of his alliterative, alliterative verbs in Holy Sonnet 14 to heighten the potency of God's fury. In general, expertise and experience create an elevated awareness of the nuances and intricacies that make for an appreciation of the beautiful. But we have all had that moment when art has simply touched us, struck us as overwhelmingly sublime, even though we know little of exactly why. In the end, it all comes down to our perception of the beauty of the art as a purpose in and of itself, a recognition that it needs to be nothing more than beautiful. You can resonate with a song's message and love it because of that, but that's not what makes it art. What makes it art is the beauty and creativity the artist employs in articulating that message. The artist could be singing about dilapidated monkey penises for all I care. Kids always love dilapidated monkey penises. What sparks the aesthetic appreciation is a beauty in how they go about doing so. Likewise, books are not art because they focus on racism or gender inequality or LGBTQ issues or anything else for that matter. They are art because of the way they express whatever soulful inspiration they may engender. They are art because of the beauty of their style, not because we dig what they have to say. I do not have to agree with a book's message to recognize the beauty of its construction. Art pushes beyond our petty human squabbles, the pronouncement of things as moral or immoral, and instead stands above the prey, at once reflecting back a mirror to society itself, and at the same time doing so in a manner that enthralls us 
with its grace and eloquence. So if you don't like what I have to say, don't worry about it. Focus instead of how I say it, for that's where my real artistry lies. Well, in any case, hopefully you find uh, hopefully you find some artistry in my next piece, which is also uh, interestingly enough about uh, interestingly enough about uh, my writing. And this piece uh, called an unintended polemic, and it it came actually it's one of those pieces that came from two different sources in my own brain, if you will, and that. <laughs> It's dangerous territory, my friends. Uh, but that's oftentimes how my mind works, to be honest. I had two different inspirations for the piece, the first of which um, came from uh, my a good friend of mine. Um, I, I don't mind mentioning his name, Roddy, who uh, is a regular reader, a great, great novelist himself. If you have not uh, read uh, Roddy McDonald, his, uh, he's written... A couple of uh, sci-fi fantasy books, including the, uh, the Thief and the Demon, and um, I highly urge you to read that first. Uh, he has also read um, The Killer. <laughs> uh, why am I spacing on the title? The Killer and the. Uh, oh my gosh! I'm I'm so sorry. I'm I will have it before you get in the show. In any case. Um, <laughs> it's like totally escaping my head. I'm having a complete and utter brain fart and his books are fantastic in any case check him out on amazon he's um, a great author and uh he had said to me he called it, it labeled my piece a polemic and i uh if you don't know what a polemic is it, i'm going to define it in the piece but it's basically a piece of argumentative writing and i, I just had never thought about it that way um and i i thought it was an interesting comment and the second inspiration was um a family member of mine um, has had COVID now for, uh, you know, here we are coming on the very um, end and tail of, uh, of COVID as a society. Um, and a family member of mine is still in the hospital um, recovering. And uh, to be honest, I wrote this piece a while back and, and didn't want to publish it until we knew um, we knew that he was going to be okay um, and that he would, in fact, make a, re a full recovery. Um, but... Uh, that uh, that piece of it and the fact that he was not vaccinated uh, led me to realize that sometimes um, I, I, I honestly don't see a lot of times I see what I'm saying is um, I don't see it as trying to be argumentative and uh, <laughs> I don't think some things always need to be argued um, and with that I bring you my second piece for this podcast called an unintended polemic an old and dear friend of mine, whose uh, apparently second novel I can't remember the title of off the top of my head, because I'm, uh, like, while I'm doing the podcast, I'm always, my mind's going a thousand miles a minute, so uh, my apologies to Roddy. But in any case, an old and dear friend of mine recently used the term polemic in describing my writings in truth in a thousand words or less. I'm not suggesting he was wrong to do so. In fact, I do believe he's probably quite right in his description. But nevertheless, I must acknowledge that the term surprised me. You see... I do not consider truth to be a polemic, even though it could rightfully be said to be one. For those of you scrambling for your online dictionaries, fret not, I'll save you the trouble. A polemic could be best be described, characterized as an argumentative form of writing, or as Merriam-Webster puts it, an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another, 
the art of disputation or controversy. And while I will own Merriam-Webster's secondary definition of aggressive controversialist, (laughs) I just don't see my writings as arguments per se, and certainly not counter-arguments or refutations of anything or anyone else. I'm just spouting my own perspective here. I'm more than aware that opinions are just like assholes. Everybody's got one, and they're usually full of shit. (laughs) And just like those kids you dropped off at the the pool, mine aren't worth anything more than yours are. I just happen to articulate mine with a little bit more panache. That is, after all, the whole impetus behind calling this damn thing truth in the first place. Oh, I've had people question how I could dare label an opinion column truth when clearly it is just my opinion and not empirical truth. (laughs) Well, yeah, dumbass. That's the whole play on words going here. It's the truth for me. If you don't like it or agree with it, that's fine by me, bro. Don't read it. Or better yet, have the guts to read it and disagree with it. Maybe even question your own perspective for a fleeting moment or two. Shoot, write your own darn column and title it True-ish in a thousand mediocre words or probably a fucking ton lot less. To be honest, I really just don't give a damn. That's because I recognize that these are just my perspectives, the lunar ramblings of a quasi-deranged mind. But every once in a while, there are some nuggets of verifiable truth in there, glimpses of fact that you can ignore if you like. But you do so at your own peril. Because fact is fact, and it don't give a damn whether you want to accept its validity or not. And when you choose to do so, it often has a way of smacking you upside your ignorant little head. Take, for example, the continued vaccine hesitancy among certain demographics. Even as the Omicron variant surges in many areas of the country, I told you I wrote this a couple, several weeks ago. Now we're here on the other side of it. <laughs> it's actually it's actually probably like a couple months ago I wrote it. Um, but that just goes to show you how long um, it just goes to show you how long uh, my relative has been in the hospital with COVID, like literally over two months now and still there. I'm no longer here to judge or moralize anyone else's personal decisions. My immediate family has all been vaccinated and have thus weathered this pandemic fairly well. Both of my kids got COVID back in December and early January, but for uh, for each of them, it was not much more than a common cold. My daughter was itching to get back out skiing shortly after testing positive, and my son had a couple of days with a sore throat and a desire to sleep for about 17 hours straight. Then again, ever since he became a disgruntled, angst-ridden teenager, the latter can be said to describe most of his Saturdays during the school year. Both my girlfriend and I have been boosted, and despite having these cootie-infected beings all up in our grill for days on end, we have consistently tested negative for COVID. Yeah, I'm still one of those folks. In other words, the vaccines work. Just as scientists have repeatedly informed us, while the vaccines ideally prevent the transmission of the disease, they diminish its virility even if one does contract the virus. So given that everyone in my household has been fully protected, at this point, I'm not here to argue with anyone about their personal, their own personal choices. 
But I'm also not here to make light of the consequences of those decisions. A relative of mine contracted COVID a few months back and ended up intubated in the ICU. If you don't know what intubated means, it means they shove a fucking tube down your throat so you can breathe. Like he's had, he had that tube down his throat for like two months. As the doctor put it when he was admitted to the hospital with direly low oxygen levels, it is not unlikely that you are going to die from this. Direct words from the doctor. I even put off publishing this column until his recovery, while painful and protracted, was finally imminent. His vaccine status? Oh yeah, you already guessed it. By the way, that family member is 38 years old. 38. Now, I'm no fan of anecdotal evidence, but this epidemic really has become a tale of two parties. Those who are vaccinated have begun to shrug off most of the impending doom of catching a virus that has killed nearly a million people in the United States alone. They have largely gone back to their regular day-to-day lives with a few mildly irksome safeguards lingering in their periphery. But if you think the same is true for the unvaccinated, you simply have not been paying attention to the soaring number of hospitalizations. And yes, this has certainly come down um, since all of them, but this has largely been fueled by unvaccinated COVID patients. You may ignore the data all you like, but they are what they are. Striking. Even though only about one-third, 36% of the U.S. population remains unvaccinated, they currently make up about 78% of current COVID hospitalizations nationwide. That means that if you are unvaccinated, you are 12 times more likely to end up in the hospital with COVID than someone who is. That's not an argument, not some type of cleverly worded polemic. That's just plain fact. Sometimes there is no argument to made, to be made, rather just an opportunity to present the facts and let people make the consequent decisions for themselves. In the end, call it what you will, polemic or not, but that is what I think truth does best. It gives people a perspective and allows them to decide what to do with it. What you decide to do with this one is up to you. I, for one, just don't give a damn. You know who else doesn't give a damn? Oh, you know. (laughs) It's Johnny. It's Johnny. Johnny, in fairness, (laughs) in fairness, Johnny just got a second case of COVID. I don't know if you heard about that one. He's got a second breakthrough case. We hope you're doing well, John Mayer. Hope uh, Hope you're coming out of it. Um... My daughter has tickets. Uh, my daughter and ex-wife have tickets to go see it here in uh, Denver at the Pepsi Center in a couple weeks. We canceled the first four dates of the tour. Hopefully, hopefully you're back and doing well. And by the time that comes around, hope you're doing well. I hope all of you are doing well. Thank you for joining us this week, folks. My name is Stephen Craig. This is Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. We're here pretty much each and every Thursday. Check us out. Listen for us. We appreciate y'all. Ain't no change Peace in out. The weather. Ain't no change Rock it, Johnny. Rock it. Me.